Well, good morning, church. It is good to see many of you here, and also for those of you that are joining us online, yet we just want to welcome you here this morning. Um, Wedding season is uh, fast approaching. I read on uh, Steinbeck Online this past week that with COVID restrictions lifting this month, that uh, the wedding industry is preparing for an exceptional year. Uh, I would uh, say that even from my own experience, uh, I have the joy of walking with three couples as they are preparing for their wedding days in the near future. Uh, And it's exciting to be able to walk with these couples through this time. And I get to hear a little bit of the excitement of these engaged couples as they book their venues and and, and they plan their meals and they pick out the colors for their wedding and and all of this. You know, the bride has found the dress and and, uh, and, and the groomsmen are, are going to do sh- uh, suit shopping and all of this kind of stuff. And, and then the couple gets, uh, gets busy preparing their list. And they've sent out their invitations. And uh, usually on the invitations, it reads something like this. Um, so-and-so, uh, the groom and the, the bride, uh, together with their parents, are joyfully inviting you to their wedding celebration on such-and-such such a day. And then it says, please RSVP. Okay, that means to respond. Respond to see who play. By such and such a date. So they can let their venue know how many people they will be expecting on that day. Uh, Today we are continuing our series through the book of James. And today I want to specifically look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Uh, But maybe even more specifically than that, I want to look just at verses 6 to 10. Um, because there's just so much in this passage, and I would just want to narrow it down a little bit in there. Uh, In these five verses that we'll be looking at this morning, you will see a series of instructions um, that really serve to kind of draw our attention to the whole point of the book of James. In those five verses, you will find one of the clearest salvation invitations in all of Scripture. Uh, Invitations you will see throughout all of scripture, uh, because our creator God is a loving God, because he is a saving God, because our God is an inviting God, his desire is that all people would come to know him, to worship him, and to love him. And so the invitation is, uh, the invitations are many through scripture. Uh, Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while you can find Him. Call on Him now while He is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that He may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for He will forgive generously. Jesus gave lots of invitations as well. Uh, We can read one in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to uh, to 30, where we read Jesus' words, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear And the burden I give you is light. In another place, Jesus said this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Even Paul and Silas, we, we read about them in, in Acts chapter 16, they gave a very clear invitation to the Philippian jailer. When the jailer had asked them what he needed to do to be saved, Paul and Silas responded and invited, saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And so these are just a few examples throughout Scripture where we have invitations to salvation, invitations into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But oftentimes, we miss these invitations if we just do a casual reading of Scripture. And I wonder if that's the case when we read James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Specifically, again, verses 6 to 10. If you've been tracking with us uh, through this series through James... Uh, you will know that James is writing to a group of people um, who know God, who have a relationship, a saving faith in Christ Jesus, who have eternal life. Uh, you've heard James refer to his audience as brothers and sisters. But no doubt in that audience, in, in, in that assembly that he was writing to, there were also people there who didn't know Christ as their Savior perhaps similar to the crowd that's gathered here this morning, here in this place, and, and also to those who are listening online. You see, when I stand up here on a Sunday morning, when Jason stands up here on a Sunday morning, we don't assume that everybody here is a follower of Jesus Christ. I suspect that there are some here this morning that are curious. Uh, they've come to check out God. They, they've come to check out who this Jesus is, and they want to learn more. I also suspect that there are some here this morning that maybe were dragged here uh, by their parents, maybe dragged here by a friend or, or by a spouse. Uh, maybe you were suckered into attending because you were promised a free lunch. Uh, you know, whatever your reasons are for being here, we are glad that you're here. But we won't assume that everybody knows Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised that James's audience also would have had a mix of people in that crowd that day. As this letter would have been read to the brothers and sisters as well. In fact, as we look at the book of James, what we have seen here over and over again is a series of tests to see if our faith is genuine. Let me do some review with you this morning. In chapter 1, we, we saw how a true faith would handle trials and how it would handle temptation in life, uh, how a true faith would respond to the word of God. We would understand and we would have seen the, the test of how a true faith would be concerned with purity of life. And then in chapter 2, uh, we learned that, uh, uh, that a true faith is concerned about people in need. We learned that people of genuine faith, uh, it produces good works in our lives. And then we went on to chapter 3 and and we saw how a true faith can be made evident in the use of our words, made evident in the patterns of speech, made evident in our wisdom, by our behavior, and on and on. Through the book of James, we have seen these tests. 
and we have seen James and we've heard James urging us to be sure that our faith is real. Test your faith to make sure that your faith in Christ Jesus is genuine. What we hear in James is someone who is very concerned that people will not be deceived. In fact, that is a heart after Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, too, was very concerned with our hearts. He was very concerned that people wouldn't just say, Lord, Lord, and yet not have a relationship with him. And so it seems to me that as James has gone through all these tests, by the time he gets to chapter 4, and specifically again, verses 6 to 10, it seems to me that James is now giving an invitation. An invitation to those who have walked through these tests and found that my faith in Christ Jesus is not genuine. And James is extending this invitation to all those who might recognize that their relationship with Jesus is not genuine. Hmm. James, of course, puts it much stronger than that. Uh, James, in his words here, he says something like this, that, that the, those who do not have a relationship with Jesus, uh, they are friends of the world. And that makes them enemies of God. Uh, further th to that, he uses words like this. Those who are outside of that relationship with Jesus, uh, he, he refers to them as proud, uh, as sinners, as double-minded. Those who are not in relationship with Jesus. Let's look at chapter 4, verses, uh, starting again at verse 6. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And so here's that invitation. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. You see, the invitation that James was extending here was to the crowd who were not yet saved. Not wanting any to be deceived. How do we know that he was speaking to that demographic in the crowd? How do we know that James wasn't talking to genuine believers in this time? Because Scripture never refers to believers as enemies of God, like James does in verse 4 in this passage. Now, it's not like James doesn't have anything to say to Christ followers here, because all the way through the book, and even in this passage, he is calling believers to fully live up to the things to which are characteristic or should be characteristic of a Christ follower. But when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, okay, that is a defining moment in your life. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, everything changes for you. Uh, in fact, the Bible is very clear and very dramatic in its phrases. For example, we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is now here. 
When you become a Christ follower, you're a new creation. The old is gone. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this. Okay, again, speaking to Christ followers, to Christians, he says, You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. In other words, when you say yes to Jesus Christ, you move from the darkness into light. Again, speaking to Christ followers, to Christians, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, listen to this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were there, Christ died for us. Do you see the word were? That's past tense. You were a sinner. You were saved by grace. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But this verse implies that you are no longer sinners. Christians, you need to hear that. You are no longer sinners. That's no longer what you are. The word sinner appears over 300 times in our New Testament. But it is a shorthand way of referring to people who are not yet Christians. You never see it applied to a Christian. At least, not in terms of who they now are. Only in terms of what was past. What they used to be. Instead, what we find in Scripture, in the New Testament, is a word that we will find over 200 times in the New Testament, and it's the word for Christians, saint, which means holy one. Christ follower, Christian, you are a saint, a holy one. It means that you have been set apart for God. At the moment you said yes to Jesus Christ, you became a completely new person in your inner being. Who you are deep down inside, you have gone from someone who couldn't help but displease God to someone who is totally accepted, totally secure, and totally significant in Christ Jesus. That's who you are, Christian. That's who you are, Christ follower. Now, that doesn't mean that we as Christ followers uh, live in a sinless perfection. We, we don't live that way. We know that. We still go wrong from time to time. But it would be perhaps more accurate to say as a Christ follower, you are a saint who sometimes sins. But you are not a sinner. Okay? That's not your label Sin is a serious matter. We get that in Scripture. Sin is a very serious matter because it gives the devil a foothold in our lives. And it stops us from being fruitful in our lives. But our identity as Christ followers has changed from darkness to light, from enemies of God to friends of God. And so what James is talking about here. He is talking to those who are currently enemies of Christ. And he's extending an invitation to the enemies, those who are not friends yet of God's. And he's extending an invitation to them. And so if that's your situation here this morning, hang in here with me. 
Because there is some very good news in this passage. And it is for you this morning. Verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. James is actually referring to a passage in Proverbs. uh, Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 in this. And I want to read that passage. Actually, I want to back it up to verse 33. It says this, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and oppressed. In other words, the writer here is contrasting the wicked with the righteous, the lost and the saved, the unbeliever and the believer. And as James is quoting this, he is assuming the same context when he refers to that passage. And he's essentially saying this, that God gives grace and he will continue to give grace to those who are humble. To the one who humbles himself or herself to God and comes to God through Jesus Christ for salvation. If you humble yourself, God will show you favor. God will pour out His grace upon you. That is the grace of salvation. And God's grace is made available to all who would come to Him. Through faith in Jesus Christ. No matter what your life has looked like in the past or even in the present. No matter how sin-filled our lives are. God's grace is greater still. God's grace can overcome all of our past. God's favor is given to sinners who are undeserving. And with that favor, God grants forgiveness. And he grants love. And he grants promise of heaven. And he promises his Holy Spirit. And he promises all the spiritual blessings like joy and peace and power to overcome any addiction in our lives. What we need to understand in this is that our Heavenly Father, our God, works tirelessly on our side. He is for us. He always has more grace to give us. No matter how much we mess up, no matter how much we fail, no matter how many times we fall down, God always has more grace for you. I wonder if there's someone here this morning that needs to hear that. Because God is never defeated. Every believer, every person who comes to God through Jesus Christ is in reality among what James calls the humble. Why? Because we need to humble ourselves in order to come to God. We humble ourselves by acknowledging our sin, by humbling ourselves and recognizing that we need a Savior. We humble ourselves by coming to God, uh, uh, affirming that He died for our sins as our Savior. And we commit our lives to Him as Lord. You see, in this passage, James is talking about the humble person as a believer in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if you are in the category of humble, you are a believer. And in that 
passage in that, uh, uh, in that place, you will receive more and more grace as God pours it out upon you because you have submitted to him. On the other side, the proud, it refers to uh, non-believers. And if you're in that place, if you're in that category this morning, in the proud or the non-believer, uh, James says God's going to oppose you. Why? Because you're proud. Because you're not submitting to God. And James says you're a friend of the world. You, you've bought into the values of the world. Because you love the values of the world more than God's values. And therefore it puts you at odds with God. I wonder if this morning some might be thinking here, well, I desperately need God's grace. I can understand that I am not friends with God. I am more friends with the world. But I desire to be a friend of God. How can I receive that gift? James says this in verse 7. He says, submit yourselves to God. What does that mean? It means that we choose to put ourselves under the authority of God. It means that we put ourselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. It means that we humble ourselves and then we are willing to and intentional about submitting ourselves to God's sovereign authority in our lives. In fact, if somebody asked you, Christ follower, what it means for you to be a Christian, that would be a good answer to give. What does it mean for me to be a Christian? It means that I am intentionally or intentional about submitting to Christ's authority in my life. Yeah, it means that I obey his commands no matter what the cost. It means that Jesus is not just my Savior, but he is my Lord. It means that I say no to self and I say yes to his commands. James is giving an invitation here to change your allegiance, to change from allegiance to the world and to change to God's allegiance, to being allegiant and submitting to God. The flip side, James says in verse 7, is to resist the devil. Now, the order here is absolutely essential. We cannot resist the devil on our own. We don't have the power, we don't have the strength to resist the devil on our own. So the first step is we need to submit to God. Because in God, we have the power to resist the devil. What you see here in James, or what you don't see here in James, is there's no middle ground. You are either friend of the world, okay, friend of the enemy, or you're a friend of God's. There's no middle. You're either under the authority of the world, under the evil one, or you're under the authority of God. You can't be in the middle. We don't run on our own authority. Becoming a friend of God means that we immediately become a friend of the enemy, of, of Satan. And that means that we take our stand against him. We take a stand against everything that opposes God's will, everything that opposes God's command. 
anything that is in opposition to God, we take a stand against that. And so we transfer our allegiance away from the world and we transfer our allegiance to God, to Jesus Christ, the one true God. Watch and look what James says after that. Resist the devil, it says, and he will flee from you. I love that. Satan's power, what that means is that Satan's power over us, now that we are with Christ, Satan's power over us has been defeated. We no longer have that old master, we have a new master. That old master, yeah, the devil, he still prowls around, he still provokes, he still tempts us. But as we put on the armor of God, as we live with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can stand against the temptations that come our way. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and 3 to 5 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. You see, as a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan doesn't have control over us. He can't make us do anything. Before we followed Christ, we were under the devil's control, whether we recognized it or not. But as Christ followers, not anymore. We may do wrong things, but we do that because we operate in our flesh, in our old patterns for living. And so the first thing we do is we submit to God. We submit to Christ as our Savior and Lord. And then, James says, come near to God. Draw near to God. Look at verse 8. Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Okay? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What does that mean? It means that our heart's desire is for intimacy with our living God. We choose to submit to God's authority in our life. And then we choose to draw, draw close to Him. To draw close, to get to know Him. Just like in a new relationship, oh, we want to spend time with that person, don't we? We look for more opportunities just to spend time with that person. Or if we're in a relationship for a long time, if we want to keep our existing relationships strong and healthy, we continue to pour our time and our energy into those relationships. So it is in our relationship with Christ. And so it's not just a system of belief, but it is in relationship that we desire to know the living, eternal, and the almighty God. It is pursuing that relationship with Him. Growing in our affection. Growing in our worship of our holy, loving, gracious, merciful, awesome God. What would you expect of a genuine believer? Wouldn't you expect that they would be marked by loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
Wouldn't you expect that a genuine believer in Jesus Christ would want to draw near to God? Washing their hands of anything that would make them unclean? Purifying their hearts? Wouldn't you expect somebody who was a genuine believer in Christ that, that they would grieve over their sin, that they would mourn and they would wail over the sin in their life and they would want to get rid of anything that would hold them back from getting to know their Savior and Lord? Because the longing of the heart of a true believer is for communion with the living God. That's what James is calling us towards. Verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. And so I wonder this morning, uh, this is just the start of, a, of an incredible invitation, but I wonder this morning if you have RSVP'd. If you have responded to the greatest invitation you will ever receive. An invitation to the greatest wedding that will ever take place. Have you received God's grace in your life? This undeserved favor from God which includes all the forgiveness of all of our sins past, present, and future. Through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. If you have not, I would invite you to pray with me if you choose to. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrificial death on the cross for my sins. I recognize that I am a sinner, that I am in need of forgiveness. You gave your life for me. And now I give my life back to you in response. I want to live for you. I want to live in obedience to you and to your word. And so today I choose to follow after you. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I surrender all to you. Amen.